0: One. basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by allaboutjazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, mp3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. Today's guest is Steve Lehman from his new album on Pi Recordings, Travail, Transformation, and Flow. Here is Echoes i is steve lehman Uh, he's got a fantastic new album out on pi recordings uh called travail transformation and flow Uh, and it's my pleasure to welcome steve to the show thanks for being here
1: thanks thanks for having me jason
0: this, uh, this record uses uh, something called spectral music, which I had never heard of before, uh, I guess this summer I first heard this record and, you know, was kind of reading about it. And I still am not a hundred percent sure that I've got any kind of a lock around what spectral music refers to, but I kind of feel like I'd like to have, uh, so can you c- kind of clue me in, uh, on, on some of what's behind the scenes on these compositions?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, uh, i I've been sort of, uh, it's a request I've gotten a lot recently, which is cool, um, to sort of try to sum up what Spectral Music is, what Spectral Harmony is, and kind of talk about it um, succinctly. Um, and it's hard to do, and it's kind of like, um, it's sort of like talking about bebop succinctly. Sure. Um, there's, there's sort of, its there's so much to it, and there's, there's, there's so many different... Um, people involved and and different kind of personal histories and histories of communities and stuff. Um, And Spectrum Music is kind of like that, too. You know, just like when you talk about bebop, um, at least in my case, I tend to sort of orient the discussion around the music of key practitioners, like point to Charlie Parker, point to Bud Powell, point to... Max Roach and on and on and on, um, it sort of makes the same thing, makes sense to do the same thing with Spectrum Music. So um, in terms of my influences and sort of exposure and connection to the music, it really is connected to um, two French composers, Gerard Griset, who um, passed away, I think, something like around 10 years ago, and Tristan Uri, uh, who teaches at Columbia, and um, who I've been working with. And Studying with for the past three years, so that 's kind of like who it is, and then to give a shot at describing what it is it 's kind of a sort of attitude about music, a way of thinking about music, a way of writing music that sort of uses the nature of sound and uh, more specifically kind of the physics of sound and um, and how sound works and kind of how we perceive it as the basis for a lot of different compositional elements um, most. Sort of famously for creating new harmonies or harmonies that are sound fresh for a variety of reasons, but also for other things like how you organize compositions, the forms and rhythms and stuff like that. Okay, um, now
0: let me let me bust it on you right there. Um, sure. So when we when we talk about creating new harmonies, uh, right. I mean I, I have some amount of uh, you know musical education, and um, uh, to me there are you know kind of like fixed there are fixed pitches that exist for example in in western music and most harmonies are based around combining those pitches in various ways uh, right. there i guess there are thousands if not millions of permutations but in any case right. it's it's based generally on the same 12 tones and sticking them together different ways and then i'm also aware of kind of microtonal music which uh, you can't even reproduce on every instrument but the idea that kind of in between those half notes are are other pitches that you you can hit in in certain circumstances are are we talking about something even other than that or or a just a different way of arranging those sounds that already exist or kind of help me out here.
1: um yeah it's part part of it is that and part of um you know what you'll find a lot in in so-called spectral harmonies is rounding Um, pitches to the nearest quarter tone um, sometimes the nearest eighth tone as opposed to the nearest semitone like you find on a piano or in sort of western European tuning. So a Um, semitone
0: would be like the difference between C and C sharp right?
1: Yeah exactly. So a quarter tone would be uh, sort of frequency wise halfway in between so you have C, C quarter sharp and then C sharp. So there's that element and then I think the easiest way to put it is that it's really a way of creating harmonies based on frequency relationships and the way that actually different um, sounds relate to each other in terms of hertz um, as opposed to thinking in terms of the intervals of a musical scale. So just that kind of change in perspective, um, at least historically, seems to have led to some pretty pretty interesting like really you know meaningful music um, and harmonies specifically all right so uh, that's I, some of the difference
0: I don't want to be Johnny footnote here but um, sure but I if we're gonna if we're gonna talk at this level of specificity then I want to make sure that the people you know who are listening who are of incredibly varied backgrounds at least according to the the mail I get uh, right. can kind of can take this trip along with us so okay. um, when you say th- kind of arranging things based on their frequencies so like I believe that a on a in the middle of the piano is 440 hertz is that mm-hmm. is that right yeah. okay so and that's uh a measure of its wavelength or something right is that close
1: uh, that's how many that's how many cycles the wave goes through in a second is 440
0: okay. yeah and so what you're talking about is finding uh is using measurements like that to come up with new relationships between notes or or specific relationships between notes is that Correct.
1: Yeah, basically. And it's some I mean it's it's not um you know, it's something that um is familiar to a lot of people working in a lot of different disciplines, um musical disciplines, and actually has to do with what often gets referred to as the harmonic series, which almost every acoustic instrument sort of adheres to that to the harmonic series with a few exceptions. So that's what kind of allows us to sort of pick out perceptually um uh, one pitch when a saxophone plays a note, when a piano plays a note, um, is that we're actually hearing several frequencies at once. The note that we hear is the loudest one by a long shot, but we're also hearing integer multiples of that wavelength. Yeah, it's get, it's get, it gets kind of um, uh, whatever, I guess, dorky kind of quickly. But um, so if you're hearing that um, A four at 440 hertz, you're also hearing 440 hertz times 2, which is 880, and then that times two, which is seven. Uh, that times uh, four, 1760, and and on and on and on. Um, so that's all kind of present. And when you look at those um, frequency relationships and kind of find out, um, kind of try and get closer to understanding why a clarinet playing that same A 440 sounds different from a piano, sounds different from a saxophone. That's what we're really talking about when we say, like, sort of using the nature of sound and the physics of sound to sort of provide a different, a different kind of point of definition for for composing. You know.
0: I mean, this this seems like looking at sound at a very elemental level, kind of its most basic level.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of people think of it like that. Yeah, kind of the the nature of sound, like the essence of sound, if you want, um, and and trying to sort of go back and 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 you know see see if there's different information to get, uh, you know, when you. Don't sort of take things, uh, certain things for granted or as given, and kind of go back, like you say, as, as kind of to as fundamental a level as you can to see if there's, you know, other um, sort of new information that's worth drawing from.
0: Okay, so now uh, we're sitting at your desk or your computer or by the pool or wherever it is that you write music, and right. uh, you're, you've got a, a blank uh, staff paper or a blank computer screen in front of you, and you're about to compose a piece of music uh, using these techniques. How does that change how you would write a tune over changes? For example, what what are some of the the differences in your compositional process from what we might be more familiar with traditionally?
1: Hmm, that's hard to answer because um, it could it varies from piece to piece. So I'm not really sure. I mean, if if you took a piece like, for example, the first piece on um, my Octet uh, album is called Echoes, and basically all those harmonies are based off of the spectrum of a very low note played by the tuba and that kind of creates the harmonic framework for the piece Um, and as a result the improvisation that I take when I take a solo has to sort of adhere to um, what I guess I call for lack of a better term spectral chord changes because I'm using all the notes that I use from the chord adhere to that spectrum so it means that I have to, I basically am working with chord changes that incorporate both sort of tempered uh, western pitches and then also quarter tones as well. Um, And in addition to that there's a very um, sort of fairly fast-moving harmonic movement, which you usually don't get um, when you have music that uh, incorporates sort of microtonal tunings as well. Usually it's very static and sort of drone-oriented, whereas the pieces on the Octet album, for the most part, um, tend to have a fairly moderately paced to fast-paced harmonic rhythm. So that's one difference in terms of the sort of compositional process.
0: Yeah, and it it sounds like your your very first part of your answer to my question suggests that uh, composing using these uh, these theories or these uh, these structures uh, isn't necessarily funneling you into any one particular compositional method it's just adding to the palette of things that you have at your disposal when you're writing no matter how you're writing is that fair to say
1: yeah i think that's a good way to think of it or or talk about it definitely um and you know i when you know working with uh an ensemble of of improvising musicians my sort of usually my first concern, I mean, or put it this way, the most important compositional step I make is deciding um, with whom I'm going to work, basically, who's going to be in the ensemble. That's the most important sort of compositional step as far as I'm concerned. And then after that, the sort of broader, more universal um, kind of preoccupations have to do with, you know, creating meaningful music and Creating music that pushes me to learn more about myself and and grow, and also the musicians in the ensemble, um, and at the same time leave space for everybody to kind of do what they do best and assert their creative agency. Um, so that you know that's kind of that's probably a fairly reliable um, thread of continuity in my work and and a lot of people's work, and then the kind of work with spectral music and spectral harmony kind of gets filtered through that larger concern if that makes sense
0: yeah no it, it definitely does uh, can you talk a little bit about uh as i understand it your introduction uh, to spectral music i think you had been introduced to it as a as a theory or a practice and then saw a concert that really kind of turned you around is that is that the case
1: yeah, I, uh, a friend, uh, when I was getting my master's degree at Wesleyan University, a couple of friends uh, actually gave me recordings, uh, a couple of recordings of Gerard Griset's music and Tristan Murail's music. And I first got to hear the stuff performed live as opposed to on a CD um, in New York, uh, this piece of uh, Tristan's called the, the Prophege des Eaux, a sort of splitting of the water in French, um, for sort of large orchestra and some electronics as well. And, um, it was really, it was a, you know, definitely a a turning point for me in terms of just, um, the different sonorities and, um, really amazing kind of textures that, um, I was able to get from the orchestra in that piece, which he often does in his orchestral writing. Um, so it was great, and I was fortunate in that I was able to speak with him uh, right after the concert, and you know, we we talked and arranged for him to, to come up and give a talk at Wesleyan. Um, so it was, you know, kind of stood out in my mind as a, as a somewhat of a turning point in terms of connection to that music, and I think that was 2001
0: one nice thing about the fact that people are hearing samples from this album all throughout this conversation is that um i i think that they're hearing that the the kind of level of um, the level of of study and of technical knowledge that uh, goes into these tunes is still resulting in music that has a real connection you know at an emotional level and if you have enough musical knowledge to know that there's other things going on, that's great. But if you don't, this music still connects in the way music is supposed to connect, I think. Uh, it seems I, like it works at all levels.
1: I hope so, yeah. I mean, thank you for, for saying that. Um, I mean, yeah, that's the idea. At the same time, you know, I, I'm not, you know, totally convinced that this kind of level of sort of meticulous care with musical materials and study and stuff like that is so unusual. Um You know, I'm thinking about somebody like Charlie Parker, for example, um, who was incredibly sort of um, hardworking and, you know, spent hours, like sometimes 15 hours a day um, for years at a time working on the instrument and also spent extended periods, um, like in the library, studying scores um, of people like Stravinsky and Bartok and also reached out specifically to study orchestral writing with Edgar Varese Um, even though he was turned down. Um, So it seems like, to me, it seems fairly consistent with the history of intellectual rigor, which kind of permeates the music of the very, you know, kind of the most seminal practitioners of the music in a way.
0: a little bit you've you've spoken about this a little bit but how how improvisation fits onto this compositional canvas that that you're creating and not just for you um given how well versed you are you know in these ideas but for the other people who are in your band who I, I can't possibly imagine have had the same amount of time to devote you know to these studies as you have can you talk about how uh, how improvisation kind of fits over all this
1: yeah, I mean again it's the type of thing it, it it's different um from piece to piece uh, the the kind of role of improvisation and and the way that it um it kind of functions in a given composition but some some of it has to do with what I mentioned earlier like dealing with spectral chord changes and calling on performers to sort of improvise um in a fairly demanding rhythmic contexts and then also you know fairly demanding harmonic context as well um just because sort of ne- negotiating whatever a harmonic uh, sort of setting environment that it, it entails you know familiarity with quarter tone fingerings or execution um, is is a lot to ask and again you know it really comes down to the performers that you're able to work with and that kind of compositional step of finding the right people so you'd be surprised actually you know um on story uh has a lot of familiarity with spectral music. Uh the trombonist um, Tim Albright um actually had played uh several of Tristan Murai's works in a new new music chamber ensemble before we did this recording and stuff like that and Jonathan Finlayson the trumpet player's um, had a lot of experience dealing with quarter tone fingerings on the trumpet. So it's kind of it it, 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 it was a sort of musical area that had a lot of overlap, thankfully, with the interests of the people in the ensemble, um, which definitely, um, you know, kind of helped accelerate the process of, of learning the music, I think.
0: Almost the second that question left my lips I realized it was a fairly stupid question Because obviously you intentionally selected The players in your ensemble And so it would be ridiculous to assume That you wouldn't have selected some players Who had some familiarity with the kind of music You were going to play So uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I won't go back and edit that question out though Because it's oh, you know fine, it's been several maybe. hundred episodes now People will get the idea that I ask dumb questions So um, yeah. you... Uh, you just mentioned Tyshon Sori, and mm-hmm. listening to his um, new record, uh, Koan, which just came out recently, um, it has, and coupled with this record, has really given me an appreciation for how careful it's possible to be about the sound of the drums right. in an ensemble. Will you talk a little bit about uh, Tyshon and his approach uh, to playing his instrument and how it works uh, in your ensemble?
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's hard. It, it, it's hard. These are hard questions because because uh, they're, they're good questions. Um, and with Tyshawn, it's hard to talk about his approach to the drums because it's so expansive and there's so much to it. You know, in 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 terms of my music, we don't really talk a ton about the role of the drums, partly because we've been working together since I think 2003. Um, which isn't that long, but to me it feels like a long time um six at least in my lifespan, sort of six years of history, and then also obviously, we work closely together in the collective uh trio field work as well, so sometimes it's just I'll give him sort of a computer realization of a drum part to you know kind of give him some very rough idea of some things that I had imagined. And other times, um, you know we'll we'll sort of have a have a discourse about what might work or he'll ask me stuff. You know, he has so many tools uh, at his disposal in terms of timbre, in terms of touch, in terms of uh, kind of volume of sound. Um, there's really no technical limitations on on what he's doing, so it's just kind of is he's one of these guys that just seems like the sky's the limit. And you know, this is again this, this idea of, of, the, of the that, like I keep saying, the sort of composition of who you work with. A big part of that too is is kind of understanding that there are certain individuals that make your music much better than uh, you ever could have made it yourself or imagined it to be yourself. You know, everybody on that record fits into that category, and and Tyshawn, um, you know, certainly is somebody that transforms every piece of music that he's ever. Contributed to of mine and and many other people's as well. So that's kind of a vague answer, but that's the best I can sort of do. <laughs>
0: Music like the music you're involved with now is, to some degree, uh, blurring the lines or merging the fields of contemporary classical composition and jazz composition.
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I I think in some ways that's that's part of it. I think you know it's hard when you talk about hybridity and 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 moving into different musical milieus and different sort of musical communities because um, I, I sort of feel like that's another thing that kind of seems to have a really long history um, starting at the very inception of, of the music, um, of all music. You know, I, I think that's something that's always there whether it's articulated or not. But I, I think a lot of it has to do with kind of access to information as well. You know, spectral music and that tradition... It's not that easy, actually, to kind of get information about that music. It's getting a little bit better, but just to get recordings and to get articles or, you know, kind of have access to people working in that area or familiar with that tradition, um, for a long time, it seemed like you kind of had to be, like, associated with an academic institution, you know, for that to happen. And even still, in my case, you know, my kind of exposure and understanding of those traditions... Uh, sped up a lot once I, you know, started uh, teaching and working to get my doctorate at Columbia University. Um, so I think, you know, this idea of access and access to musical information. I think there's some really positive things that are happening in terms of people having access to different resources and resources that perhaps previously they didn't have access to. So I, th- I think that's changing in terms of sort of a fusion of, of styles. Or a fusion of musical histories, I'm I'm not so sure because that almost seems like it's always going on. It's just not always sort of talked about openly.
0: Yeah, I was going to say I, I'm not sure it's so much a fusion as uh, that the the well from which these disciplines can draw the you know the the kind of water source at the base of these wells is in some ways becoming almost the same source. I mean people are people are just beginning to ignore I think a lot of the uh, barriers the artificially created barriers and restrictions um you know to what the music can sound like what it can incorporate which i find very exciting i mean i think that's what keeps the music fresh and and interesting and moving forward so yeah
1: i think that, that that's a good way to put it kind of like the the well of the so called well of information yeah exactly it seems to be getting bigger and bigger and um yeah, I mean, I I feel like you know exactly like and 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 the guys on 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 the Octet album are just, you know one represent that very much so, and all the different wealth you know kind of wealth of information that each one of those guys has at uh, his fingertips. It's really um, you know it's it's amazing, and uh, that that's part of what kind of opens up these sort of doors and allows these projects to happen you know at a high level a lot of time, which is great
0: when people uh, write about you or or interview you um it seems like two names often come up uh jackie mclean and and anthony braxton and so uh wanting right. to travel with the pack i'm going to ask you about the same uh-huh. two people um and sure. and just ask you to reflect a little bit on on both those people uh and you know what what from your time uh with them is carrying over into what you're doing today
1: it's it's hard to to talk about them because you could spend the whole interview talking about just one of those guys. Um so so it's hard to sort of to jump in um in a way, but um Jackie McLean is somebody that I idolized and sort of modeled my work as a musician after from the time I was 10 years old basically and he's still um you know, uh, a really important uh, point of definition for me, um, basically in every every single thing I do as a musician. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the things about him that connects to um, you know something like spectral harmony, um, at kind of looking back in hindsight, is of course his kind of intense focus on sound and on timbre and his sort of ability to sculpt and cultivate this kind of incredibly distinctive, one-of-a-kind sound on his instrument. And, you know, as and and, and sound in that context really means not only the timbre, but obviously the phrasing and, and everything else. So that's something that, you know, I, I realized in hindsight became an aesthetic sort of preoccupation of mine um, just through sort of, using his own path through the music to, to sort of orient myself um, from a very young age. And and Anthony, you know, it's the same thing. I got to know his music a little bit later on, I guess when I was a teenager and a little bit older. And, um, you know, he he's just opened up so many doors for me, um, conceptually and professionally, and is somebody that but both of them are guys that really went out of their way to to do every single thing they could to help me and to support me you know that that, that that's what i think of when i think of those guys and um it actually in in terms of the information they they gave me it, a lot there was a lot of similarities um there were some things about it that were confusing when i was 18 and 19 and and kind of studying with Jackie one day and Braxton the next um but by and large it, it was mostly that there was you know uh, quite a bit of overlap in the kind of information that they were trying to communicate to me so as i'm sure for reasons that i'm sure you can imagine um you know i think Jackie in particular may be somebody whose career is a little bit misunderstood and a little bit misdocumented because he's normally thought of this sort of bebopper with the golden pedigree who then sort of dips his toe in the avant-garde pool and works with ornette coleman and rashid ali and then becomes a teacher Um, which is true but he kind of you know kept his music evolved in really concrete uh, specific ways in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and his language as a saxophonist and his kind of commitment to to innovation is all kind of present uh, even if you just kind of take a cursory glance at the end of his career so was something that was helpful, you know, his kind of emphasis on finding your own voice and finding your own past, I guess, through music was something that's, you know, sort of fundamental to my own relationship to music. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of a beginning of, of what, you know, kind of get, gets called to mind uh, when those two guys come up.
0: And they both she- seem to share a real joy of exploration and discovery uh, that seems to inform uh, both of their uh, bodies of work.
1: Yeah, I think that's true, definitely. I mean, just keeping keeping things in a state of evolution and, and at the same time cultivating, you know, a very sort of unmistakable artistic identity, and, and both of them, you know, have this long history of sort of cultivating and um, uh, supporting young, uh, younger artists uh, in their own ensembles and as educators as well. Um, They might be, I mean, I I don't know, I guess guess starting in the 70s with with Jackie when he moved to Hartford and with Braxton a little later, I mean, it's pretty amazing when you look at the list of of musicians who they sort of brought to the attention of the international music community. It's really overwhelming, actually. And I think that's connected to what you're talking about, that sort of exploration, wanting to stay connected to young musicians um, and learn from them and share information. You know that's another kind of overlap that they share.
0: Well, I'm I'm very excited about uh, about this octet record, and uh, it's it's been just a thrill to talk to you about it. it, it I guess one of the things that I I find so exciting about it is um, I'm always happy when music is not only. You know, fun and interesting to listen to, but when it introduces me to something, it it widens my world and it broadens my horizon. And certainly with this album, uh, you know, you've done that for me, and I appreciate it. So uh, I'm very glad you came on to talk about it, and uh, I hope you'll come back because I have a feeling that uh, we would have a lot to talk about uh, as your career uh, continues.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for, uh, you know, making the time in your busy schedule. I much appreciate (laughs) it.
0: This is oddly enough what I do, so uh, (laughs) I got plenty of time. Thank you Steve Lehman from his new album Travail, Transformation, and Flow on Pi Recordings. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list. You can find it at TheJazzSession.com. Just click on the uh, contact and mailing list link. You can also sign up for the Facebook group for the show. If you go on Facebook and just type the Jazz Session in the search box, you'll find it. And I give away music on uh, both those locations. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
2: Everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.